Welcome to Neighbor Up Spotlight. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining me today. Neighbor Up Spotlight is sponsored by Neighbor Connections and the Equity in the Arts Fund. Neighbor Up Spotlight showcases citizens making positive contributions to their neighborhoods. My guest today is Ms. Yavanka M. Hall, founder and executive director of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition, the first organization in Ohio dedicated to addressing disparities in the black community. As a little girl, her family moved many times, seeking safety from domestic violence. She attended three elementary schools, Chesterfield, Mount Pleasant, and Beehive. And despite the upheaval, trauma, and pain in her life, she remained focused academically and was very active in school activities that cultivated and developed her amazing leadership qualities. She attended Carl F. Schuler Jr. High School, where she was on the school paper and in the National Honor Society. In 1986, she graduated from John Marshall High School, the first in her family to graduate from high school. She participated on student council, senior class executive board, the yearbook staff, the chorus, and was a student tutor. She went on to graduate from Notre Dame College in 1994 with a BA degree in political science and history. In 2013, she received her master's degree in public administration from Texas Southern University and was summa cum laude of her class. Outspoken activist, community leader, program innovator, writer, researcher, mentor, humanitarian, and philanthropist. She is an unapologetic champion for the African-American community and speaks out on all areas of disparity that impact Black people. Her sincere and unwavering commitment to address social justice issues keeps her on the front lines of the battlefields for equality. Ms. Hall serves on several boards and committees and has been recognized locally and nationally as a health disparity expert. For her outstanding contributions to our community, she has received numerous awards. In 2012, she received a special certificate of recognition from the U.S. Congress and Senate. In 2019, she was inducted into the John Marshall Hall of Fame. 2020, she received the Plain Dealer Homegrown Hero Award. 2021, she received the National Association of Social Workers Ohio Region 3 Community Member of the Year Award, as well as the Black Woman Green Future Award from New Voices Reproductive for Justice. Ms. Hall has lived in the historic Lee Miles neighborhood for 47 years and is a mother, grandmother, and a member of Garfield Memorial Church. She is a Neighborhood Connections grant recipient and a member of the Neighbor Up Network. And welcome to Neighbor Up Spotlight. Ms. Hall, thank you for visiting with us today. I'm, I'm very honored to speak with you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that I'm glad we're having this opportunity to talk. So I'm going to jump right in. 1974 was life-altering for you and your siblings, along with other traumatic events. Can you share your experience and how it shaped you, how it shaped your path, and the promise that you made? So in 1974, my mom was 24 years old. Um, We were in our first week, probably first week of school. School used to start in September for for young people who who don't remember. Um, But school used to start in September. Right, um, (laughs) Right. it did. um, You know, my... um, 
you know, we had we had recently moved. My mom had been divorced for about a year, um, and so our life was starting over. We lived closer to home, and closer to home is closer to where my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my aunts and uncles lived. And um, and then just one night, um, out of the blue, um, my father followed us home, um, found out where we lived, followed us home from school, and then that evening he came back um, to our house, broke into our door, and um, stabbed my mom to death in front of myself and my younger brothers. So my childhood promise um, then, while my mom was, was dying in front of me, was um, I was six years old, two months shy of my seventh birthday. But my childhood promise was to use my life to help change the lives of others. Um, I didn't know what that meant. You know, as a six-year-old, you don't really know. Yeah. Um, but then as I started getting a little older, um, I realized, you know, what that promise was. And I, I worked to to realize that promise every single day. Yes, you do. You really, really do. Now, in 2011, you founded the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition. What was the straw or motivation that inspired the establishment of this organization? Wow. So I used to be the director of um, the Office of Minority Health. And before that, I worked at the Heart Association. But before that, I did some HIV research. So I had a background around, you know, some of the, the disparities that were going on. Um, in the African American community, but in 2008, um, as a director of the Office of Minority Health, um, you know we were focusing on everybody. So you had right. to focus on the Hispanic Latino community, the African American community. So you focused on everybody's community, and I hosted a local conversation. So I hosted this local conversation on health disparities, and um, I utilized the whole Trinity Commons Center. And while we were hosting this conference, we broke everybody out into their own interracial ethnic groups. So people were allowed to go into groups to talk about the issues that were most important to their community mm-hmm. so that when we left out, we could leave out with a comprehensive report, not to say this is what all minorities need, but I wanted to know what specific needs there were for racial and ethnic groups. Um, and so there was a group of people who went into a room and said, we're interested in black folks. Mm-hmm. And so some of those were white people. Some of them were black people. Some of them were black people from the community. Others were black people who said that they actually work to address issues that impact black people. Mm-hmm. And the others were white people who said, you know, I work to address issues that impact black people. So what happened in that room <laughs> <laughs> um, was enough for me to, to get the report back from the room mm-hmm. to say, Okay, is something is there's something wrong here? Mm-hmm. Like all of these people went into a room to talk about black people, but they went they came out with no no like with generalizations and no no plan on solutions. Okay. Um and so like one of their things like one of the things that came up was about, you know, black people need to get over racism. I'm like, are you serious? Racism? <laughs> every, every single structure that we have in the United States, everything that we have here in the United States is built off racism. Everything. Um, everything. And, you know, and this, it's regardless of whether you're talking about our educational systems, our employment systems, our housing systems, where our neighborhoods are, where we're allowed to live, where we aren't, where we don't live, um, and then health. Yes. Health and health care. Health and health care are two different things. 
because health is a personal thing. Health care is not. Right. So, um, and and then one of the other things was about pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. And I'm like, okay, so what happens when a, when a person has no boots, no right. straps? What what happens when you have no feet? Right. Um, and so I'm I'm thinking, wow. So some of these people are here because, well, what you would have thought was the people who said that they were advocating on behalf of black people would have stepped in and said, uh, no, you got that wrong. Right. <laughs> but that's not what happened. And so I said, okay, well, we need an organization that actually says, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat over the nonsense. I'm going to tell you exactly what is going on, whether you like it or not. Yes. My grandmother said, you know, people like you because you tell the truth. People hate you because <laughs> you, you tell the, the truth. truth. Right. That's the but, truth. But one of the things that we know is that the truth ain't never lied. That's right. So I have sought to tell the truth since 2008. I asked another organization who was focusing on um, minority health at the time um, to, to change their focus back to what it originally was, which is around African-Americans because they got their, their start, their funding from this African-American cancer initiative. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, look, go back to what you did because the people that you're trying to serve are already being served. The Hispanic and Latino community, the Asian and Pacific Islander communities, like all of those communities are working very well. Like they have coalitions. They have people that are speaking out on their behalf at the table. So when I'm at the table speaking, I'm, I was the director of the Office of Minority Health. I'm speaking for everybody, but they got a representative at the table. Yeah. And so there's no representative for me, and my people are dying. And so for me, it was, okay, well, we, we need to, to figure this out. And so, you know, again, you know, um, I was like, you know, God, go get this assignment to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want this assignment. I want to do something else. Like, what I had hoped is that I would, you know, be able to, to work in, in corporate America and make some really good money and yeah. and be able to, like, live a, a, a really good and stable life. And yeah. what I got was, you know, it ain't stable. So, yeah. um, and so I... um. And so I fought it for a long time. And so, um, you know, finally, you know, I wrote down the name. Like I wanted, I, I'm like, I can't do all of Ohio. You know, I don't want to just do Cleveland because I know all these people in Northeast Ohio. So I'll do, I'll make it the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition at my desk while I was working. Okay. And, um, and then after the city of Cleveland let me go for no reason at all about speaking out about, closing up here on hospital. Yes. I, I had a pro I had a problem with that too. <laughs> so you were not alone. Yes. So when I spoke out, I, I lost my job. It cost yeah. me my career. Yeah. And so it was, do I speak out and live with the fact that I didn't say anything for my life, rest of my life, or do I speak out and then I have to deal with, with the cost? And God said, you speak out and I got the rest. And there I'm like, go. okay. There you go. And so that's, that's where the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition came. So that was in 2009 when I was sitting at the desk. So that was a few months after we had hosted that conversation in 2008. And I just kind of sat on it until like 2011. And then um, 
2012, I, I lost my job. And then, um, um, and then in 2014, mm-hmm. Samir, the 137 shots happened first. And there was no, for me, there was not enough public outcry. Yeah. And I was like, why aren't people outcrying? And I'm like, wow, they're not speaking out for the same reason they didn't speak out about racism in your meeting that you hosted around health disparities yeah. because they want to keep their jobs. Yeah. So they're not going to speak out about issues that are, are important to them because they don't want to lose their position and you ain't got nothing to lose. So I, I um, so right after that was Tanisha Anderson yeah. um, and then Samir Rice. And then yeah. we hosted this, we hosted this, um, this local conversation on the department of justice mm-hmm. And I hadn't had my 501c3, and, like, I applied for it. I got my 501c3 two weeks later, and we've been rolling rolling ever since. Yes, you have. You really, really have. You do a lot. So now, what are the guiding principles of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition? So what we look at as a coalition is we look at the impact of racism. We look at food insecurity, um, research and evaluation, policy, um, behavioral health, and health promotion. And we do all that by working to educate, advocate for, and empower the community. So our guiding principle is to make sure that equity is in every conversation. And not just um, where people kind of gloss over equity. Yes. Um, but for us, we, we want to, if you ain't defining it right, I'm at the table to tell you you're wrong. Right. Um, because <laughs> there, there have been times when I've been at the table um, where people, you know, I was, I was at a, at a table and, and there was a fortune 500 company making up a story about black oppression. Like the person came in and said, yeah, you know, I wrote this story. So I want you to read it and see if it, you know, talks about the things that bother the black community. And there was a, there was an African-American woman that was on the call and, um, there were two African-American women and there was a white man and a white woman on the call. And so the, the white woman, um, the white, the one of the black women had to get off the call, and he started talking about the story. And I'm like sitting here, going, "Are you serious? Like you making up some stuff? Hmm. Like you you don't have to make up a story about black people. Go talk to some black people." Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and so the so the lady that was on the call, she said, um, she she said I, she said. Every single day, I live in an area that's rural, and every single day, I cry for my husband and son when they leave the house. My husband is fearful of going to the grocery store, um, thinking that he won't make it home. Um, My son is harassed at school. He's one of the only African-American students um, in this um, rural area, and she's not from here. So she's telling her story. Now, mind you, he wrote a story. She's telling her story, and this woman is sobbing. I mean, she is crying. And so the guy goes, so she finishes, and she steps to the side. Like, you watch her go out of the Zoom call, mm-hmm. and she you see her shaking, crying. And so the guy goes back, and he goes, um, so do you think that the story will work? And I said, are you serious? <laughs> I said, I, I, I need you to acknowledge your coworker. Right. He said, huh? And so the other lady you know, who wasn't African-American, broke in and said, um, so what he means is, you know, is the story, 
you know, can we just go with the story that we got? And I said, are you serious? <laughs> I said, do you, is there not a person on this call crying? Like, are you all not, are you, how are you going to talk about black oppression when a person is on the call here? Right. Crying about being oppressed and you are ignoring her. You are the very reason why my organization exists. Yes. I had to force them to acknowledge this woman on the call. And I, and I looked at it and said, these are Fortune 500 companies. It may cost me some money. Yeah. But um, I'm going to acknowledge her pain. Yes. And so she wrote me a note and said, I want to thank you because you, I, I just, she said, that's the first time that ever happened, that I've ever been at work. And I just couldn't control it anymore. Yeah. Um, and she said, and the fact is that they normally just keep on having a conversation. Yeah. You know, even when black people talk about black pain. Right. And you force them to acknowledge my pain and I will forever respect you yeah. for forcing them to acknowledge my pain. And so that's, those are the guiding principles of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition and why we work so hard. Yes. And you do. You do. So tell us about the programs and the issues that the Northeast Ohio Black Coalition addresses that impact the black community. Because you have a lot of really good programs. I made the notes here, too. You have the rest of your life for all of this? Like, we, we do everything. Anything, yes. anything that impacts the community, we do. So lead poisoning, um, anti-racism in hospital settings, the impact of menthol on um, African-American communities. Because one of the things that we do know is that the tobacco corporations targeted, specifically targeted the African-American community um, with tobacco yeah, I, I can remember the days when the uh, back in the this was like in the late seventies, early eighties. Remember when Newport and Salem used to give out the bags and all the little all the hats and everything, and all the billboards that were in the black community. I remember that they had all all yeah, kinds all had, kinds of little stuff. Yeah, they had they, the Newport Jazz Festival. Oh yeah, you know uh, yeah, the mm -hmm. Jazz Festival. Mm -hmm. Um. New, they call it Newport News. And so Newport News is jazz performers and gospel performers. Actually, Mahalia um, Jackson mm -hmm. performed at Newport News. And she was a smoker. Mm -hmm. um, and she also, you know, had um, sarcoidosis. Yeah. Um, and so she had a, a chronic illness. And so, you know, um, the, Nat King Cole was a smoker. Yeah. Um, and you, you would constantly see him with a cigarette in his hand. Yeah. Um, Both you of know, my a parents lot of our were. Older, 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 yeah. Yeah. My dad with my dad smoked camels, you know, yeah. non-filtered camels, you know, and I re but I remember when, you know, the tobacco. I can remember when you could drive through the community. You saw two billboards. It was either liquor or cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't too long and ago. So, and they're still they're doing the same thing, but now they're doing it with kids. And so yeah. what they're doing is they're making them flavored. So they're making strawberry and blueberry and cherry flavored. And so what they're doing is they're attracting a younger generation a smoker, getting people hooked while they're younger um, because the average age of a smoker is 12 years old and keeping them for the rest of their lives. So, you know, that the no menthol campaign is something that's very important to us. Um, and, and if you've ever ridden through um, any of the suburban areas, whether it's Maple Heights, um, not so much in Shaker Heights, um, but Parma, um, yeah, Parma. Maple Garfield, they're like cigarette stores everywhere. Yeah, they are. Shops. Yeah, there are. A lot on the west side, a lot. Yeah, and so, you know, so you have to look at how they target 
communities. Cleveland has done a really good job of keeping um, those those um, proprietors out of the city. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do is we want them to place a ban on mentholated products to follow the the rule of the FDA mm-hmm. um, and with the eliminated menthol products. And also our racism in hospital settings, um, working on that because, you know, one of the things that we do know is that um, up until 1978, you know, um, monkeys were used as African-Americans in medical textbooks. Wow. Um, and so, you know, with the whole thing around medicine and racism, um, uh, a lot of people are doctors because their fathers and grandfathers um, were, were physicians. And so a lot of those, that racist, that culture has been built. Um, and so it is there. Um, and it is there at the very foundation. And so we want to make sure that we're addressing racism in every aspect of the hospital setting, regardless of whether it's you going to the bookstore to buy something or going into the cafeteria um, around um, all of the who has job, who has what jobs um, at the hospital and who doesn't, you know, who are administrators and, and who aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then looking at patient care, you know, the quality of patient care, what happens to African-Americans when they present um, with chronic illnesses. One of the things that we do know for African-American women is African-American women present in hospital settings with heart attacks or stroke and are more likely to be turned away and told, you know, go home, take some aspirin, you know, you'll feel better in the morning, you know, or if you don't feel better, call your doctor and, and you know, try to make an appointment with them. Um, and so our pain is dismissed. And so we've seen that time and time again. So we do that. We have, um, we do some things around healthy foods, healthy menu options, um, particularly looking at schools, um, because one of the things that we have seen over these course of these last um, few years is the Obama administration, particularly um, um, First Lady Michelle Obama, um, worked to make some changes, positive changes, in school menu choices. Yes, she did. Um, but then those changes had to be adopted by the local governors, you mm-hmm. know, um, would make those changes because that's how the, the, the funding formula is coming. And so one, Ohio was one of the ones where, you know, we can already know what's going on, um, but the changes weren't made, particularly yeah. in a school. So our, the, the food that our kids get, you know, we don't have school cafeterias anymore where they, where people cooked. Um, yeah. You know, we have stuff that's just trucked in. And so mm-hmm. kids are eating a lot of unhealthy things. And we have kids that have more health issues um, as a direct result of lead poisoning. As we know, lead poisoning was banned in paint um, in 1978. But we still are, we that's are it. here in Cleveland at the epicenter. Yes, we are. Of lead poisoning crisis. Our our rates in Cleveland, Flint, Michigan's rates of lead poisoning for the water was about 7.2%. In Cleveland, our lowest rate is 14.2%. We have some communities in Cleveland um, that 49, 50% of the children are poisoned. We have some kindergarten classes where 90% of the kindergarten classes are are poisoned. And what's going to, what happens is a lot of those children are misdiagnosed. So instead of being diagnosed with lead poisoning, they're diagnosed with autism, they're diagnosed with ADHD. Yes. Um, and, and it's all related, directly related to lead. And so what lead does is lead goes from your blood, from your blood to your bones 
and then it goes into your major organs. So lead doesn't just impact you um, when you're young. Lead impacts you throughout your life. And so what we see is when people get older, lead is now attacking their kidneys, um, so they end up having kidney failure. Um, they have hypertension and dementia, which are things that we see particularly high in African-American communities. We see a large percentage of African-Americans with de dementia. We see a large percentage of African-Americans with organ failure. Um, and then we see a large percentage of African-Americans with hypertension, and it's directly tied to lead poisoning, and they never talk about that. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, because I remember, well, I'm, I also want to point out here, too, that you founded the Cleveland Lead Safe Network. And so you're absolutely correct. I, I can remember a story. There was a, uh, a charter school here in Cleveland. I believe it was overall somewhere between Payne and Chester, and one of the students uh, um, because their drinking fountains didn't work in the school. And he went out and got some dirt and had the dirt analyzed. They had to close the school down because the percentage of lead in the dirt, this, I think the school was on, it was on Chester. And if, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, and, and they had to shut the school down. But, you know, and it was a student who went out and did his due diligence and had the, the, uh, the dirt analyzed that the school was sitting on. So, and so you, you just got to think about how they how we tear stuff down in Cleveland. Yeah. What we do. Yeah. You know, um, um, in Cleveland, when they tear stuff down, you rarely see a water hose following a, um, a, a, a truck. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you're supposed to. So each, the EPA standard is if you tear something down, you got to wet it down. Yeah. Those are their wetted standards. And so what we see is they're tearing house after house down and they're not following any EPA standards. And what happens is when you tear something down, if it's on a day that's not breezy, um, the, the, the dust travels three yeah. miles. So if you got a breezy day, it travels more than three miles. And so that means that people who thought that they got away, away from it didn't. And so, you know, for me, fighting about that, because I live in Cleveland. I, yeah. I, live, I live in an old house that had started to be built in the late 1800s. It was finished um, in 1924. I live... Um, in the neighborhood, I live in an old farmhouse. And so when they tested my land around my house, um, my, my rates were 200 times higher than they should be. Wow. And so I don't, I don't dig in the ground at all at my house. So all of my, like I mulch my yard and I put flower pots on top of everything. Mm -hmm. So I don't dig down into anything because I don't want to poison myself or my grandkids. Yes. Like, I don't, I don't want to poison anybody else. I don't want anybody else to come here and be poisoned. In my house, because it had old layers of paint, um, I put siding on it yeah. to, to cover it up so that it wouldn't flake off. Um, and so we have to think about all of these other homes that are old, have fallen into ill repair. Um, and, you know, what are some of the things that can be done to allow the community the community to have the dollars that they need in order to fix the homes. Yeah, like we raised a whole bunch of money for lead, mm -hmm. but we've done very, we've given out very little of that money. And so it's like, you didn't get the money to just let it sit in a pot and say, Oh, well now we got 200, $2 million, $200 million. Mm -hmm. No, the money was supposed to be raised in order for it to get into the hands of homeowners to fix homes. Right. Um, and not just to be sitting there as a cash cow for some somebody else. So talking about that issue, um, talking about um, infant mortality, 
Um, I, I work um, right now, part of my team is working on um, with the pregnancy and infant loss um, program. We did some, some a research study um, for them. Um, they're out of first year Cleveland, so we did a research study for them a few years ago around African-American women and um, infant mortality, people who had had a miscarriage of stillbirth or had a baby, lost a baby before the age of one years old. Yes. Um, and so for us, those things are important because, you know, also miscarriages, stillbirth, um, maternal death can also be directly related back to lead poisoning. Right, and, Cle- um, and Cleveland statistics are very, very high. Well, our, our, our rates are higher than some third world countries. Yes. Um, but the, in the African-American community, our rates of, of um, infant mortality and maternal mortality have remained unchanged since emancipation. Get out. Wow. So, so it, it's something, you know, it's not, so it's not, oh, well, if we free you, you'll do better. <laughs> it had nothing to do with that. It yeah. has something to do with racism still permeates every single, because when you look at women, black women, across the income spectrum, they still die and their babies die. So no matter how much money they make, they die and their babies die. So it's not related to social economics because if it was, they wouldn't die and their babies wouldn't die. So it has to be something deeper than that. And the deeper, deepest rooted problem that we have in the United States is racism. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, it really, really is. It, that's all I can say. It really, really is. And OK, well, first I want to finish. I just want to before I before I make this other statement is I do want to. Yeah, because it's just so much, you know, just in my in my own personal experience as a black person in these here United States. But I do want to mention that you do have a program called Leave, which is uh, Ladies Escaping All Violence. You have another program called Move Men Overcoming Violent Environments. Then you had your Babies and Brunch program where you reached over 100 children. You Meals for Mommies where you provided 67,000 meals for families. And you had a workshop called No More Tears. And I do want to encourage the listeners to go to your website. You just have a treasure trove of information. I read your entire website. <laughs> I do my due diligence. I'm serious. I, when I'm preparing for a conversation, I do. I read everything. So you really have a lot of excellent excellent information and also too you have three really wonderful videos the one featuring you called an everyday superhero and then you have two other videos which i really liked one on black health disparities which was really a very good historical piece and the other piece on black health care professionals and then i also want to say that when you were talking about going to the hospital and heart heart attacks i am a heart disease patient. I am a heart attack. So so I I had what you were saying. I had that experience. I went for two years. They kept telling me I was having indigestion. I was having a heart attack. The morning I went in one morning, sent me home. Uh, The guy was poking all on my chest, just very, very uncaring. I was back that same evening in an ambulance. Um, Then they were going to send me home again. When a cardiologist said no, you know, and then it was because of this cardiologist who, you know, continued to push, discovered that I had two blockages. I have a stent implant and uh, now and so and I've had other horrific experiences wow. at our local hospitals here. So, yeah, I am a heart disease survivor. And um, in one situation, um, I arrested on the table and they never told me. I found out 
child through another uh, physician who I had to go to because I had kidney failure due to hypertension. So imagine arresting on a table and never being told. Wow. And that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I've shared that yeah. story. And, it, and it's funny, I've shared that story and people said, well, why wouldn't they tell you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like people can't, people can't believe that these kind of disparities happen, and they do. And they happen. It's not happening to them. Right. And they happen more often than you realize. Look, I, and, and, and what I'm saying is, you know, like all of these things, domestic violence, which I told you my story. So, you know why domestic violence is important to me. Yes. You know why no more tears is important to me. No more tears when your sweetie ain't so sweet. Right. We do that every October. Then we do no more, no more tears, love letter to you in February, where we actually have women write a love letter to themselves. Because most people who are in domestic violence relationships have never received positive messages about themselves. Yeah. And so this is their opportunity that every word that they use is a word that they picked out. And it can't be anything where you talk bad about yourself. And so women, they write a letter to themselves. They write a letter to their daughters. We get women that write letters to their sons. Like, and then I mail them to the letters to them. So I take the letters back. <coughs> I give them envelopes, so we, we buy this beautiful stationery and these beautiful envelopes, and then they put everything on them, and then they put a stamp on them, they seal them, I bring them back, I mail them to them, and then I mail everybody a Valentine's Day card. Oh. Um, and so they actually get something in the mail um, that is not a bill, um, that is something that's an affirmation of, you know, um, of, of the work that we do. So we do... We do that. The the messing violence piece, you know, those things are, are important to us. So, so leave, ladies escaping all violence is important. Move is important because, you know, men, you know, overcoming violent environments, there are men that are abused also. And yes. so we want to make sure that they have, have an outlet. Um, the babies and brunch, you know, babies and brunch was, you know, um, you know, two moms, two other moms came to me who had special needs children. And said, you know, we want to do something for the children. Um, when when we knew we were going to close down the schools, they were only scheduled to come in for like four days, you know. And I'm like, well, we can't we can't just leave these people hanging, feed them for four days, and then like, oh, go figure it out. Yeah. So they had to go back to responsibility. So we ended up so from four days from day one to day 365, um, sending out meals um, to disabled children and families. We finished out the year sending out 150,000 meals, yeah. not from my office, not from, from my house. Yes. You know, all these volunteers came to my house wow. to deliver meals. Um, and then we created another program, which was Meals for Mamas, because what happens was babies and brunch was for school-aged children. Mm -hmm. So we had, well, even though we had some families that had kids who weren't in school, they still got, we got food for everybody. Um, and I'm not, not talking about we just gave them a bunch of canned goods. Like, right. I went and bought food like I was shopping for myself. Fam right. For your like, family. We, yeah. We, I physically went. One of the, one of the volunteers whose, whose children attended um, Cleveland Heights High School, she came with their menu, and she said, your, your menu looks like better than our menu in Cleveland Heights High School. Yeah. Um, the menu that you're sending out for the kids. And I said, that's because I'm not going to send them out something that I wouldn't eat. Right. You know, Um. And so, you know, babies and brunch, and then, um, then, then we had a bunch of mothers who had babies, and they're not in school. And so they're having problems with their jobs because a lot of them are working in 
um, essential jobs, and some of them are working housekeeping. Well, remember our hotels and stuff shut down. Right. So it's like, so, so people who were working there, how are you feeding your kids? So, um, so we started, you know, we, we added um, um, Meals for Mamas, too. So Meals for Mamas was, was women who had small babies, um, you know, kids who were not school age. And then what happened was there was a young man who went to high school with me who was having um, a hard time. He had a chronic illness, but he was not a senior. Um, and so he was not a senior. And because he was not a senior, Meals, Meals on Wheels, did, he did not qualify for Meals on Wheels. Um, and so he, one of my brothers said, you know, this young man is having a hard time eating. And I said, you know, we're, we're going to create a program called Delivering Hope. And so we're going to deliver hope to people who are not seniors. They're disabled and they need food. And so we started delivering to him. We delivered to him, I want to say like November, December, and he died in oh. January. He was my age, graduated from high school with me, gone. Um, and, you know. My condolences. And before that. Yeah, and before that, we had a program called Midnight Meals with a Message. So Babies and Brunch wasn't our first time with food in the community. Yes. We, before that, in 2018, we had a program called Midnight Meals with a Message because we had this whole string of violence that took place in the community. And remember, our, the, our program is small enough to pivot. Most of these programs that get money, they can't pivot mm -hmm. their service, and we could pivot ours. So what we did was, we, myself and some, some, some two other, three other moms and some volunteers made up sandwiches that had, you got a sandwich in a bag with fruit, a cookie, water, and a street card. And if you don't know what a street card is, a street card is what we give to um, our um, displaced communities um, as a resource guide. It's a little resource guide that folds up and it fit in your wallet or fit in your pocket. Mm -hmm. um, and so we we started giving those out. And so what we know is between midnight and 6 a.m. is the most violent time in urban America. Yes, it That's is. All of the stuff. And so we, at midnight, we were out at midnight, three women, myself, Mickey, and Sherry, were out taking food into the most dangerous areas in Cleveland, um, areas where there had been known gunfire, um, taking it, and making sure that people have food. Do you know how many babies we fed at midnight? I can people imagine. People out in the street with their babies in strollers. Men had the babies because they're out there doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing, thinking that somebody won't shoot them because they, they got their baby, baby with them. They'll shoot you and your baby. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 the fathers, you know, the people that we ran into were so grateful to receive the food. Um, marginalized people come out at night because they're marginalized. Um, and so we, so at the time the chief was Chief Williams, um, and Chief Williams was like, Ivanka, is that you in the white van? And I'm like, yeah. He said, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> but my office was like, it's this white van, you know, that's out here. You know, we don't know what they're doing there. <laughs> they're interrupting police business. <laughs> and I'm like, did violence stop? And he said, Divide and slow down as a direct result of us being out there, and he said, "Yeah, it did." I That's said, wonderful. I did. I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah, that was. And he dope. said, "You're not scared of nothing," and I said, "No, I've seen everything." So when you've seen everything, you're not scared of anything. Yes, you have, and I encourage people to read your story. 
I'm sitting here kind of choked up myself, okay? But I encourage people because you're, you're tough. You're tough, you're resilient, and you're profoundly inspirational. Thank you. You're welcome. So now the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition follows in the footsteps of a network of black social, fraternal, and intellectual organizations that have protected black people. Why is this organization uh, so important for the black community? And, and, and I just want to also say, too, in September on PBS, there will be a documentary around the history of black organizations that um, ex- have existed throughout our time here in America and how this time period that we're in right now, we don't have as many of those organizations that we once had. So why, tell people why your organization is so important. Um, my organization is important. I think a lot of the reason a lot of those organizations disappeared because they were doing really great work. Yes. Um, and what happened was other communities saw the work they were doing yeah. and know that work was worth money. Yeah. And so they said, okay, well, you can't get money because remember foundation funding. Yeah. Only 10% of foundation funding goes to African-American serving African-American organizations. Mm-hmm. 10% of all this money for foundation right now. I'm like, well, yeah, 10%. Okay. My thing is if you just paid your fair share of taxes, we wouldn't need all these organizations. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when we look at the, the funding, um, how the funding formula is white, white organizations, Black initiatives that are headed by white people get more money than black initiatives ha- headed by black people. So what happens is black people say, you know, you know, white people say to black people, look, if you merge with us, we'll put you on our payroll and you won't have to worry about scuffling for funds. So hence the, the end of black organization. So now you are now part of something else. So mm-hmm. whatever you was doing was forgotten about, but you're now collecting, you're on somebody's payroll. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the reason that, that my voice is important, and I've been told many times that I should step down into a lesser role and name a white head. Wow. As the Ohio Black Health Coalition. And I've been told that by white people who said, you know what, you need to, you know, if you put a white woman, if a white woman is in charge of Northeast Ohio, like, you wouldn't have to scuffle so hard for money. And I said, why should I have to scuffle so hard for money? And I'm actually doing the work. And, and you're actually a black person. <laughs> you yeah. know, that, yeah. Wow. And, and I think that that's what, what has happened is that, you know, in, in our, you know, I told you earlier, we started off this conversation. I said, I lost my career. Yes. For speaking up. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, you know, I'm going to continue to speak up. Like things ain't going to change because for me, as much, as much experience and knowledge that I have, Mm -hmm. I should have been the CEO of something else Mm -hmm. making a a major salary, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't going to happen to me Yes, because I, I had already showed that I was willing to use my voice. Right. And so nobody else is going to hire me. So for me is okay. Hire myself and go find my friend, go find some other folks right. that have have voices too. And so that's what happened with my staff. My staff are um, professors who were never tenured. Yes. <laughs> uh, because African American professors, professors are less likely to be, be tenured. tenured. That's very true. And so they um, they came to work for me, and they're able to do the things that are their passion. Wow. 
so much work to do. We just it's and it's just constant. It's never ever ending. Um, and, and so actually, people think I think that's where the whole thing about the angry black woman. Like people think, oh well, you know, you're just angry. And I'm like, I'm not angry. I no, said, I, I'm not. Like I'm there, there's no anger in me at all. I'm a very knowledgeable woman. I know what I know, and I don't speak on what I don't know. Yeah. But but you know but you know you know you know that's just a uh, a stereotype that they throw at us because <laughs> you know when mm-hmm. I was when I was coming up in school you know my parents moved from Glenville when in 1960 I did one year at Miles Standish went to Shaker Boston University and I was always you know, told why are you so black <laughs> you know when I would speak up about stuff when I was in high school I was known for being outspoken and I just found that was so funny and that and I would get that from black people I would make people uncomfortable. And so yeah, you know. <laughs> and, and I think that's one of the things with me, you know, is that since I, I remember, like, when I see people that know me from elementary school, yeah, they the first thing they do is they go, "Are you still talking about black people?" <laughs> so that means I've been talking about black people since elementary school right. enough where people remember, remember me. We're yeah. talking about black people, right? You've been outspoken, like, right? Are you still talking about black people? And I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And I ain't mad at you. Um, uh, you are very transparent about your health and wellness journey. Why is it important for you to share your story? And how are you doing? You know what? I think that I think that a lot of times what happens is, you know, the things that happen in the doctor's office, mm-hmm. no matter how horrific for black people, mm-hmm. it remains in the doctor's office. And mm-hmm. it goes to the grave. And so we never find out about, what happened to auntie? What happened to grandma? Yeah. You know, um, nobody finds out on a larger scale. And I remember when I was, I was probably about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. My grandmother had surgery. Mm-hmm. My grandmother's 90, by the way. Oh, she bless her. Oh, that's sweet. And, uh, and if she wasn't in the wheelchair, she'd be driving me bananas. She'd be in the car. <laughs> um, but she, my grandmother had surgery. And when she came back from the surgery, we expected her to be well. And yeah. when she came back, was in pain every day. Yeah. So every day my grandmother would literally come out of her room crying. And my grandfather, you know, the man trying to soothe his wife, like, what can I do? Like, you know, my grandfather built an extra ba- bathroom so my grandmother could have her own bathroom to herself. Um, and she, she was just in so much, and she kept going back and forth to the doctor, to the doctor, to the doctor, to the doctor. And then finally, what happens was she went to the emergency room because she couldn't take the pain any longer. And there was an emergency room physician who wasn't her doctor who saw her and who said, she said, I'm having pain right here. And he, he went and ran an x-ray and discovered that they had left a uh, surgical instrument uh, in my grandmother uh, for a whole year. Uh, the pain she had been talking about for a whole year in the very same spot that the doctor had ignored, told her to go take six baths, you know, go and, you know, go, go rest. You will, you know, maybe you, you work too hard and, you know, all this other nonsense. Just, just a and, lot of dismiss, he, dismissiveness. Yeah. You're and dismissing. so for me, I didn't want that to happen to me. Yeah. Like nobody, you know, my grandmother never talked about her internal pain, what had been going on with her. All of, I mean, just think about the psychological impact of, of knowing something is not right, right. And, and going day after day after day and literally crying yourself to sleep, taking pain medicine, taking so much pain medicine that now her kidneys are shot, um, all because of what happened in a, in a medical setting that was racist. 
And so for me, you know, what happened is I went to the doctor, I had surgery, and after the surgery, I gained like 20 pounds the next month. And, you know, I'm like, hey, I think something wrong. Yeah. And I did y'all, did something like, did something that y'all did mess with something else? And they're like, no. And I said, no, something that you did, then I gained some more weight. Then I gained some more weight. And now we're talking about a hundred and some pounds later. And they were like, oh, you know, we need to, to schedule you to go talk to a nutritionist because you don't know how to eat. Oh, yeah, I do know how to eat. Right. So I go to a nutritionist, you know, because that's the whole thing about, you know, black folks is, oh, well, you know, the problem is y'all don't know how to eat. All y'all want to do is eat stuff that's greasy. And, uh, and I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, and so I get to this nutritionist, the nutritionist walks in the door, he takes one look over at me, he sits down, he ignores me, starts typing on the computer, and then out the side of his face he says something about, well, you know, if you stop drinking soda pop, you can um, oh, no. lose 20 And I said, huh? He says, well, you know, if you stop drinking Coca-Cola, I said, huh? And he started naming off RC. I said, dude, I know what, what pop is. I said, but I don't drink it, and I have not drank it for, at the time, it was 20-some years. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, I don't eat pork. I don't eat beef. I, I can't eat seafood. I have seafood allergies. Um, I don't eat soda. I don't eat um, stuff with refined sugars in them. I, I do like the occasional chocolate chip cookies, but they got to be really good. Um, <laughs> and, so the, and I said, but I can't figure out. I said, I think I have thyroid disease, and I, I want you to give me something that can help with the thyroid disease. Like, can you give me a diet for people who have thyroid disease? And I said, because sir, you, you are racist. Like you, you didn't even, you took one glance, look at me and said, here is a overweight black woman in the office. And so her problem is she needs to learn how to cook healthy foods and that she has an addiction to soda pop because obviously, you know, all heavyset black women have a problem with food and have a problem with soda pop. And I was pissed. And I'm like, yeah, by the time I get finished with you, you didn't talk to the wrong black woman crazy today. (laughs) Um, and, you know, and so for me, it's, that's me. But my grandmother ain't going to say that to him. Yeah. My aunt ain't going to say that to him. Yeah. But I, I want to be able to say what you can't say. Yeah. And so that's why I'm here to fight. I'm here to say what other people can't say. Yeah. But we get a whole bunch of cliches with people saying, oh, I'm here to be the voice of the voiceless. And it's like, no, you're here to, voice, to be the voice of whatever money you can get. Yeah. No, I'm the for real deal. Like, I'm going to say what you can't say. Yeah. Because I'm going to make sure that what needed to be said is said. Yes. When I leave out of room, nobody has to guess what I needed to say. Like, ain't nobody got to say, right. well, did, did you want to mean, no, you don't know, know what I meant when I leave. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Now, advocating for issues that have historically impacted the black community can be so overwhelming and exhausting. How do you and your staff stay encouraged? Because right now, I, I, I'm exhausted. I, I'm just exhausted by what's happening in the news. I'm exhausted by the uh, black people being shot down by the police. I'm exhausted by just uh, just a bunch. It's exhausting. How do you and your staff stay encouraged? So every morning um, when we start work, we do a debrief. So we talk about stuff in the news. I mean, like the real deal. Like we having conversations that people that had at their house that, you know, only the people at their house heard. Like, we talk about racism. We talk about how it makes us feel. We talk about those things as a, as a team. Like, our breakdown is for real breakdown. If you, if you look, and because I, I tell them, the stuff that we're dealing with is already heavy. Yes. So, 
if the stuff on the news is heavy to you, I want you to have an outlet. So, you know, and this came for everybody. Everybody, if you're if you're not willing to to do the work, you can't work with me. Yeah. Um. And so my team. Um. And so in March, so in March, like, you know, we rely on donations. But I did like some extra like consulting work and some other stuff on the side mm-hmm. to raise some money because I found out that I received an award, mm-hmm. um, 100 Women Know in America, and mm-hmm. that it was in Arizona. And so I um, took my zap, my staff to Arizona. So we went to Arizona. We rented a house um, that had a pool that we never used. But then we <laughs> had a chance to like go to some art galleries and go visit a winery and go to a soul food restaurant and just get a chance to just kind of talk and laugh, listen to music, um, just to take our minds away from all of those other things. And so next next year, I want us to be able to go to Martha's Vineyard. None of us have ever been. Um, and um, just to go there and, you know, have a, a little powwow again. But I think that, and then every, you know, um, for right before the 4th of July until Monday, we we were off. Like it's like I just called and said, you know, I just said, okay, look, y'all, we gonna we going off for uh, two weeks. Let's just take a brain break. Um, you know, if you got a meeting that you know that's on your schedule and you got to attend it, but otherwise, don't worry about zooming in. Take an extra nap, get some rest, um, and then for the holidays, we close down. Um, like for me, it's. I want people, I want my staff to be treated like I would want people to treat me. Like, I don't, I don't want to be looked at as a staffing commodity. Like, uh, you know, I work with somebody who didn't want people to take time off, didn't want people to take breaks, you know, who um, could care less about what was going on in your world. Like, his whole thing was about money, mm-hmm. you know, and it was about <clears throat> power. And my thing is about people. And the only way, you know, and one of the things we do know is that African-American nonprofit executives um, die earlier than white nonprofit executives. Mm. For real. Wow. It's a lot. It is a lot. It is. Now, and that's because we're constantly digging for money. Yeah. You know, we're, you know, we, um, you know, I have to have unrestricted money you know, in order for us to do salaries. I have to have unrestricted money to do the pivot. Like, yeah. I can't pivot into a food program if I don't have any money that's set aside for unrestricted. Yeah. If all of my money <clears throat> is restricted through grants, then I can't do the other things that are emergencies. Right. You know, and so for me, I rely on donations. You know, we rely on on donations. We have some people who donate $3. We have a, a, a one guy who donates $3.59 every month. Bless we have another lady who donates $500 every month because she looks at the value of the work that we do and said, you know what, if she needs to pivot, she needs to pivot. I have people who I still have a freezer outside. They'll come and drop off stuff, and then I'll call families and see, you know, if they need stuff. Like right now I have these two turkeys, and families are like, Turkeys, that's a lot of work, and it's summertime, and it's hot. It's too hot to cook a turkey, so I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'll just leave them in the freezer. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what? Turkey? What do you do with that? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have to be able to make the pivot. And, and I think that nobody makes the pivot better than nonprofits that are boots on the ground. Yes, that's very true. That is very, very true. 
So now, what words of wisdom and encouragement do you have for young people, and particularly African-American youth, who want to advocate for issues and policies that impact their community? What do you want to tell them? Well, there, there has been no major struggle in, in African-American history that has not been led by young people. True. Dr. King was not, was not 100. Nope. He was <laughs> in know, his 20s. Malcolm X was not 100. Yep. You know, the, the, the people who, who were out marching in the streets with Dr. King were, were, were elementary school students, junior high, high school, college mm-hmm. students. Mm-hmm. They were young people. Like we, there, there, has, there has been no progress without young people. We need young people in order for us um, to make progress in the African-American community. So, so don't let old people tell you that old people led anything because old people ain't marching nowhere. You know, all of our movements have been led by young people who are willing um, to do what needed to be done. The reason that we had so many young people, particularly in the 60s, is because their moms and their dads and their aunts and uncles were working. Yeah. Um, and so young people were like, okay, well, they got to work, but I can help lead these efforts, you know, and they led those efforts. And without them, we would not be where we are. That's very so true. So in order for us to continue to march forward, we have to understand that young people are of a great value to us. Yes. I have college interns that work with us. Every summer, and one of the interns, she worked last summer, and she said she loved it so much that she asked if she can come back this summer, and so she's back with us. Awesome. I have a high school student right now that's working. She's 16 years old. She's out of Shaw High School. Um, and she said, I had so enjoyed my summer working with you that my brother is mad that he <laughs> can't work with you too. Um, and that when I tell my friends about the work that you do, you know, and the work that we do and the work that I get a chance to do, they're all like, we want to come work with you. Yes. Um, or the, the first day of when she came here and she had a school tablet, I said, girl, you can't use that. That's your <laughs> school tablet. It's going to be stuff that you're going to have to do that you, and so all of our students, we give them a brand new computer and a headset. Nice. You, you, you need this, but those things cost me, right. you know? And so again, you know, if I had, if I only had restricted money, I wouldn't be able to go buy students a computer. Right. You know, because I wouldn't have any money to go do it with. Um, and so being able to go buy her a computer and a headset and just look at the smile on her face to know that she's like, I got my own computer, you know, I got my I got a headset and she's able to, to do her work. And so when her brothers and sisters are, are busy at the house and she's in a Zoom meeting, she's able to put her headset on and continue on with her meeting. And so we have to prepare um, our young people. So we, but you know, part of what we do is I'm an elder statesman. I'm a grandmother, so I'm an elder statesman now. And so Nelson Mandela said, there's a place for everybody, but elder statesmen are the ones that are supposed to help, to help train the young people so that they know what missteps to not take. Yes. So there's a place for everybody in the movement. We just have to understand what our place is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now can you elaborate on your motto, live your purpose on purpose? Oh, yeah. So I do it every day. Mm-hmm. You know, the I, I live my purpose on purpose with purpose. Like every single day I get up and the first thing I think of is how can I change people's lives? And, and my team thought I was kidding. And they're like, do you know that at 3 o'clock in the morning you sent me? Um, 
<laughs> a newspaper article or I'll see like one of my one of my um one of my employees, one of my staff, she likes um birds. Mm-hmm. And so I'll see something about a bird that I've never seen before and I'll send it to her like, Oh, have you seen this? And she said, I just you know, just the fact that you think enough about other people. Yeah. Um to 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 send us stuff or um, you know, I teach um I do a grief recovery class every Saturday for the next eight weeks. I have five women that are part of my class. And I told them when they came, when they started, I said, look, this ain't your mama's grief recovery class. (laughs) Like we're going to talk about history in here. We're going to talk about the history of black pain um, and black grief and how we look at it and, and what, you know, you know, how we look at it. So that part of that is living my purpose. So my purpose, people think that their purpose is like, okay, this is one single thing. You know, and I look at mine as the one issue, which is black oppression, but it's all of the avenues that we that come off of black oppression. Mm-hmm. So you got a black person that's being oppressed, but then you got all of these antennas off of it. Right. You know, and so that's my purpose. My purpose is to discover what those antennas are and to take them down. Oh, wow. So now. You post many quotes by Martin Luther King. What is it about his words that continue to be impactful and inspirational? And, and what is your favorite quote? He was forward thinking. Absolutely. You know, I mean, like, I, you know, I think that if, if we ever talked about, you know, like when they, they canonized people because mm-hmm. they said that that person performed a miracle during their lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think that Dr. King should be canonized yeah. because he, when you look at the, the, when you look at his words, today. His words sound like he's talking now. Right. He talked about he talked about right to work as being racist before we even knew what right to work was. We only started talking about right to work a few years ago. But he was talking about right to work in the sixties. You know? Mm-hmm. And so like we act like right to work is a new term, but when you look at some of his writings, he was like, Hold on, black people, right to work ain't for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is not a good term. Right to work will have you in chains, you know. um, And I was going to say, could you elaborate on right to work right now for those who are listening for what it really means? So the whole thing around right to work where they're like, oh, this is your right to work. It means inequality in the workplace, not having unions, not having a voice um, where they can do have you at any hours, any time, anywhere, like all of those things that we have looked at as, those um, great monumental moments for the union, mm-hmm. um, having a regular work week, mm-hmm. you know, having a regular work day, having vacation. When you have right to work, they don't have to have any. You don't have to have any of those things. Mm. So when we have states that are, are out here pushing right to work, mm-hmm. those things are racist theories. You know, those are racist theories that are used by corporate puppets to, in order to oppress people and not just black people. White people are oppressed by white to work too, but they they don't understand. They think that, well, this is something that's going to be better for me and my family because, you know, because when we look at right to work, we look at the word. Right. How, you know, we we can work. It sounds it sounds it sounds positive. It sounds positive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can work in this garbage in the United States, and so so what the the quote that I from Dr. King that I I utilize all the time. So Dr. King had a quote about the African-American clergy. And he said, look, if you don't recover your zeal, because you know, the church was, was the church, was the nursing home, it was the hospital, it was the, 
the political, it was all of those things to black people. Yes. Um, and it said, if you do not recover your prosthetic, prosthetic, prosthetic zeal, you will become no more than a social club. And we look at club, we look at churches now and the lack of young people that attend a lot of these churches. And, and when you ask them why, the first thing they say is, oh, this, you know, this is just the way, this is a club. This is a way for people to get money. They, they got all these cliques and, you know, I'm not part of the clique. And it was like, he was so, he was so right. Yeah. You know, that a lot of these churches have lost their way and um, have led, you know, black people astray. Um, you know, that it's more about the show instead of the show up. And black churches used to show up yeah. for black pain. And then it became all about the show. Where do you live? You know, black, you know, back in the day, black people, black churches, black ministers lived in the parsonage that was beside the church. Right next to the church you or, know, or so in the neighborhood. It, yeah. So if you wanted to know where the black minister was, he was right next door, you know. Um, so everybody, we had communities where everybody lived together. We couldn't, you know, live anywhere else. So, you know, so pimps, prostitutes, pastors, you know. <laughs> everybody, um, right. Everybody. They yeah. all lived there together. And so we figured out a way to live together. Like, look, these are things we're going to do. And so what happened is we lost our way. And then it became about, you know, less about God and more about you. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have, too, we have far too many people that are writing. Um, they're, they're trying to use their position to write their obituary mm -hmm. instead of using their position to resume young people. And I want to resume young people more so than write my obituary. Because if I do what I'm supposed to do, mm -hmm. my obituary is written anyway. Wow. That was a very profound thing to say. Very. Now, in 2021, the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition presented a 54-page African-American rescue plan to the previous Cleveland administration. Have you had the opportunity to present this plan to the new Cleveland administration? And can you give a brief overview of the plan and what would you like to see occur. And I read the plan. I encourage those who are listening to this conversation to read the African-American um, rescue plan and all the work that you put into uh, putting that plan together. So one of the things that we looked at is, is like, okay, if we get ARPA dollars and we're going to have all these dollars that be, are because of COVID and COVID, the impact that COVID had on the African-American community. And so if it, if it had it on marginalized communities, then we need to make sure that we're doing whatever we can. So we looked at the plan and said, what happened in COVID around schools? And so it was like, you know, around access to, to Wi-Fi, you know, making sure that these, there's Wi-Fi in every neighborhood, um, looking at um, um, whether children had um, tablets at home in order for them to be able to, to do their educational studies if they were not in schools. Um, we looked at the pivot, you know, we looked at, um, so we looked at education, we looked at health, we looked at housing, we talked about lead poisoning. We also talked about a plan that I had asked for years ago. Um, one of them was to bring back midnight basketball yeah. and to actually incorporate in midnight basketball, job skills, barbershops, food, and other things like food that's cooked, not handing people produce that don't have a house. Um, and I know a few weeks ago they announced that Midnight Basketball was coming. Yeah, I saw that back. in the news, too. I did. I saw that. 
I saw that. With all of with all of the things that I asked for. Excellent. <laughs> um, so somebody read something. Some right, um, somebody's paying attention. And, and I asked for that. Yeah, and I asked for that. I asked for that in two thousand and nine. Yeah. Um, that I had asked for, you know, they, they, you know, I was the director of the Office of Minority Health. What can you do for minorities? Okay, well, this is what you need to do. The other thing was around housing. Um, yeah, Cleveland needs housing. About, bad. Was about making sure that we had housing for low-income housing. Um, but not only that, but giving people with houses in Cleveland that have shown that they're going to have lived here, um, to give them a tax a tax break that will allow them to be able to fix the inside or the outside of their house. Um, and the administration announced that. Yeah, they I They announced see. the tax break. Yeah, I, I And see. that came from me. Wow. Because I saw that uh, they were going to give uh, some money to the, for, for the arts organization that had been lobbying to get money, and that uh, I mm-hmm. read an article that they were going to set aside, what, $53 million for uh, housing and other things here in Cleveland. Because ha- Cleveland's housing stock is old. I live in an mm-hmm. old house too. I live in uh, the Union Miles neighborhood. I'm, yeah, I live in the Union Miles neighborhood. I'm live right around the corner from John Adams, and there's definitely a need for quality low income housing in Cleveland. Desperate, a desperate need for it. It really is. Yeah, my my. Um, so you live near where the mayor grew up, and where I, li- I, I grew I, up. I live on I live on his the street. <laughs> I live on Dove. So my great grandmother. So my my father's mother, who mm-hmm. I don't know well. But she's is there's a house on Dove. There's a corner house that's brick and yellow. Mm-hmm. That's on Dove and 116. That is my grandmother's house. And I think I know which house it is too. They yeah. always have really so nice is, flowers has, in the yard, if I'm not mistaken. And it has yellow yellow awnings, and it's a brick house. Um, but we grew up. I grew up over there until I was you know six years old, and then we moved into the Lee Harbor neighborhood. Yeah. But well, yeah, I, I I think you know that some of those things. So obviously, I I think that they're they're actually reading it and taking note uh, of the of the things that we asked for. That's good. You know, it, um, but I think that we, we just have so much to do because we have to, to make sure, like, you know, Eliza Bryant Village, you know, oh, for, yes. for the care part to close. So what will happen with seniors who can't afford um, care? You know, yeah. they can't, you know, particularly when, like, African-American women are more likely to age in poverty than anybody else. Yes. Um, and so if African-American women are aging in poverty and they don't have money and something happens to them medically and they have to be in a home, you know, where are they going to be? Because Eliza um, Bryant so, was, was impa- it was impacted by the, by the, uh, by co- during COVID. Because I remember reading and seeing the story where they did shut down that portion of, of uh, Eliza Bryant. And I was like, man, that. That's not good. Eliza Bryant yeah. is definitely needed. And and it's been here for a hundred years. And, yeah. and and the fact is, you know, the the work that they've done are able to do with poor people. Yes. Poor people. We and that's where that's my, where my, I, when I when people lose their way, the the people who they look at as being worthless are poor. And so black people can't lose their way where they don't focus on their own. That is so true. Because my aunt was in Liza Bryant. That's where my aunt went to live. Man. Yeah. And, and just think, it was a place that she was able to go. That she was able to and go to. And now people don't have that, won't have that place anymore. Yeah. And so um, I had them on, um, <clears throat> you know, I talked to, to Danny and he said, you know, yeah, you know, we, I said, you know what you need to do? You need to do a city hall takeover. You need to come to city hall one night 
and get up and take over their public comment period, which I actually fought for. You know, I fought hard for public comment. And and, and thank you, because we we definitely needed that. That it, it that's it was unthinkable that you could not make a public <laughs> comment on your own for your own city and the people who you know are in city government. So thank you, because we definitely need that. So I fight. So you the like. The city council is going to tell you that they did it, but I can tell you what I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and on, on behalf of the citizens, I would thank you, and we appreciate it because we appreciate because it it's needed. It's definitely needed. You know. Yeah, definitely. So now, can you comment? Because at the time I was finishing writing the script, I mean, okay, so we're gonna pivot to the Supreme Court. And just there's just so much we could cover, but we'll just do a quick bullet points. So can you comment on the recent uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, the Miranda rights, and um, and as a t- as I said, as I was finishing up, of course, the changes with the EPA, and I know there's a whole bunch of other stuff, but just those three bullet points in terms of how it's impact and its relation to the black community. Well, we have a racist Supreme Court. I mean, you know, how how do you, you know, they got on robes and they should have on hoods. So, you know, <laughs> we, we have a Supreme Court that has been picked by some of the most racist legislators um, in the United States, including um, the picks of Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, and I, I look at him. I look at him now and I look at him then as um, um, as a cult leader. Um, yeah. And so, I, you know, I'm, I don't know, you know, for, for our, I think that we need to expand the Supreme Court, that we need to add four more justices. Mm-hmm. But then will the next administration, will they try to do four more and four more, you know, um, you know, because we won't hold the, we won't hold the keys long. And I think that, that we, as, as, um, Democrats, Democrat elected, um, need to force our Democratic leaders to not cowtail to the whims um, of Republican, um, of the Republican Party. I think that when we do that, we do a disservice to our community and to ourselves because we're so busy trying to be friendly that they don't care when they come into office. What they do is they start slicing and dicing. And what gets sliced and diced are our social programs, yeah. programs that can benefit our children, our elderly, disenfranchised, um, poor people. Yeah. And poor people aren't just black people. Yes. You know, white people are poor too. And so, you know, white people fit in that 99% along with us. Right. Um, the large majority of, of white people. And so, you know, we need to understand that we, that racism is alive and well in America and that that whole thing around Abortion rights has everything to do with this whole replacement theory garbage. Yes. You know, um, white, black women receive about 22% of the abortions um, in this country, but white women are 78%. And so what happens is that you get a white male electorate majority, white male old, um, who come in and say, well, the population of white people in the United States is declining. And so how do we, how do we make sure that we sustain our population? Okay, well, women can't have abortions. You're going to be forced to have your babies. Um, they don't care about black women. You know, what they care about is population, and it ain't black population. So that the whole replacement theory is that other people are replacing white people. And so this whole debate around um, abortion um, 
is a racist, is, is following through on this whole racist theory around replacement. Um, and so for, for African-American women who will more likely be penalized more for trying to seek abortions or not able to get them, because we have 25 states um, in the United States that have um, restrictive laws. And so some of them are actually talking about um, get, making it a felony for people to seek out abortion. And so for us, um, we need to fight like hell to make sure that black women are not, because what's going to happen is we're going to be the ones that are overpenalized and we're going to be the ones in jail um, around abortion. Um, and, you know, we need to, to make sure that we can do everything humanly possible. Um, and we need to encourage young people. Like young people just can't be out in the streets because Dr. King was not, you didn't just see him out in the streets. He had... He had the legacy builders that were behind him, the lawyers that were writing the legislation that could change our lives, Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, you know, um, the greatest pieces of legislation. Um, and so for us, we, we need young people to actually have folks that are actually writing policy. So if you're going to be mar marching, you need to be voting. You need yes. to be making sure that policies Yes. address the needs of your community because otherwise just being out here to march is not going to save your people. You have to march with a purpose. And part of that purpose is making sure that policy follows your march. Yes. Well said. Absolutely. Now in 2021, Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition received a grant from Neighborhood Connections. How did this grant help your mission? Um, um, within all of our grants, you know, it allows us to be able to, to do our grassroots work, um, to work more with the community. I think that one was around our conference. Yes. So we do a conference every year, a State of Disparities Conference. We've been doing it. We've been doing our State of Disparities Conference since 2015. Um, the, we do a State of African-American Disparities. Um, this year is focused on COVID. Um, last year we, um, we had a youth version. So we had an adult version. We had a youth version that was driven by youth. So the youth organized the speakers, the you know all of our interns and our high school students, and um, and so they put the work together behind that. So those dollars from neighborhood connections allow us to be able to make sure that a larger, the larger community understands around Black health disparities, um, the whole thing around addressing African American disparities, um, and so. For us, like I said, this year we're going to be talking about COVID because, yeah. you know, the real deal is that COVID has permeated every avenue in black life. And yes, so has. many of us have lost so many people from COVID. Um, I've lost a lot of people that I knew from high school wow. um, from COVID. And, you know, the, the simple fact is I was impacted by COVID and still experiencing brain fog because of COVID. Yeah, um, me too. I, had, I got it twice and my hair came out. Yeah, and your hair, your hair. Yeah. My uncle lost yeah. his arm. Yeah, my uh, yeah, of yeah, and that and that and that's really interesting because when I I I actually got it in 2019 before it was called COVID. I got it in October of 2019, and then we had the shutdown in uh, January. It was in March of 2020, and then I got it again at the beginning of this year. I did. I kind of hesitated on the vaccination, but I'm 66 years old, and I've got a daughter who was worrying, you know. So I went ahead and did it, and then. Within maybe about a, a month and a half after the second shot, 
I don't know if it was a shot. I don't know if that, you know, I've read articles, one say, you know, one thing and one say another. I experienced what was called this hair shedding. And it yeah. was it was devastating. So it's kind of slowed up a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, the brain fog, the tiredness and what have you. So I yeah, get I it. Had the, um, I had the hair loss, like, so I have some pretty, they're not long thread, long hair, but my hair is a, a pretty good length. Mm. And, like, I remember combing my hair. And like whole lots of my hair were in my hand, and I'm like, "What is the heck?" Listen, you, I, I listen. My, I can. I've been a commercial act, commercial talent for a very long time. So I, you know, I, if I can, if I can say this, my hair was like down my back, and my hair is silver, and you know, and so my, I used to say, you know, my hair, my hair, my, my hair was a star. My head was just carrying it. Okay, so I know just talking about when I, when my hair was coming out. I literally stood in my bathroom and screamed. I I, I couldn't believe it. I was just, you know, and I did end up going to uh, this uh, wonderful sister who's a, 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 a she founded the, a black hair a, a, a cosmetology, uh, excuse me, dermatologist. But now she's over in Shaker and uh, Dr. Chi, I believe that's how her name is pronounced. And I went there. Okay. So it slowed up and I and I had to cut my hair off uh, just below my shoulders. But I know what you're talking about. I, I actually saved a bag of my hair because I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. It was coming out in whole clumps. I know what you're talking about. And you, it but, was like. I reached in and I'm like, what in the heck? And so it was like my, on the sides. So on the sides of my hair, it just all came out and it was, it was bald. And so because my hair is so long, I could cover it up. And so my cousin, who's my stylist, she said, don't worry about it. I'm going to work with it until it comes back. And that's what we've been doing. And, and, been working with. I'm, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because I'm not hearing this conversation about hair loss due to covid in yeah. the in the national media you i've heard little mentions of it but not what you and i have just said i'm not hearing that at all and i and we're clearly the two of us are not the only people that are experiencing it but it is yeah it's, when i talk about hair loss i talk about people losing their limbs because my uncle lost his arm you know, I talk about brain fog. I talk about um, bowel obstructions, that COVID causes bowel obstructions, um, that COVID causes you to have muscle weakness, um, you know, that COVID causes, COVID causes you to have heart issues. So what we've been seeing is six months out with people with COVID, more heart attacks, more strokes um, because of, of COVID. Because COVID, COVID is not the damage that we see outside because the hair is superficial. Right. Is the internal damage that COVID right. is doing. Right. So, you know, if COVID is bad enough to make your hair just come out because I, it needs, because your, your body is trying to fight yeah. and it needs them vitamins. Yeah. And so all them vitamins, your hair is coming out. Yeah. Because your body is like, look, I can't do the hair and this. <laughs> right. Right. So. Something's got to go. Right. I something. Right. You can we can worry about the hair later on, but right. right now let me let me handle this. Right. And so COVID is playing ping pong with yeah. people's internal organs. Yeah. And so for me, just think about babies and young kids that yeah. have COVID. Like, how is COVID going to impact them for the remainder of their Gosh, lives? Because yeah. remember that COVID is not something that we can see, yeah. taste or feel. Right. You know, COVID is something that is internal. And so yeah. internally, what's happening to these young people who um have COVID um, or have had COVID um, or being exposed to COVID. So we know that a lot of older people are dying or young people who have other chronic conditions yeah. are dying. Yeah. But what happens across the lifespan? Yeah. 
with COVID long after COVID yeah. has impacted you. Long term. What, what is it doing to these young people? We don't know. Yeah. We, there is no, because nobody has even looked at it. Yeah. I'm on all kinds of, like, I'm not on any studies here, but I participate in a national effort mm-hmm. to address law law. And so I'm one of the very few black people that's mm-hmm. on there. And I'm on there all the time going off. And people are like, yeah, she is just, <laughs> I'm like, look. Nobody, I look, I, I'm like, yeah, you got your concerns over there, but I'm talking about my folks. So, look, I need you. And so, and then I'll get comments in the comments section that says, I agree with you, Yvonne. <laughs> 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 because I'm like, you don't know, like, when they talk about COVID toe, you know, um, you know, that COVID, you know, the, you know, COVID, there's a such thing as COVID toe, that COVID makes your toes look funny, you know, yeah. for people who have COVID. Um, or makes your nails look funny, or your nails will grow back funny, or because of the nutrients that is taken out of your body, your nails will be white because all the nutrients wow. are gone. Um, and so nobody's talking about that. Nobody's talking about um, how COVID in fa- impacts your eyesight. Because yeah. COVID does. You know, um, yeah, COVID is, you know, COVID is, COVID is the plague. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is serious. You know, it reminds me as a um, when I was a little when I was a little girl, I would go visit my grandmother. My grandmother used to always, no matter how many times you came in and out the house, she would make you wash your hands. And then during this COVID period, it dawned on me. My mother was born in 1919. My dad, no, my dad was born in 1919. My mother was born in 1920. So my parents were born right at the end of the of the influenza plague of that time period. And so it, it hit me. Oh, so, that, so that's why Granny was always, you couldn't touch my grandmother unless you washed yeah. your hands. And I mean, you could come in and out of the house a hundred times a day. And, that's, and it dawned on me. I said, man, my parents were born during that time period. Yeah, but you think know? about, you know, how, how other things that black people did during that time period. Um, we washed dishes with bleach. We put a little bleach in, yeah. in, in, in dishwasher. I, 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 still, I still do it now. <laughs> Well, it was because it was sanitized. There yeah. was nothing. There was no Lysol. Yeah. So you needed something to sanitize. And so we figured out, oh, we can use bleach for sanitize because we yeah. use it to kill. Okay, well, I'm going to put some in my water. Yeah. You know, and, and old black people put it in their bath water. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so you think about, you know, some of the things that we saw going up. You know, like for me, I grew up with old people. You know, my grandmother's 91 years old. Yeah. So I, my grandmother's mother. You know, I would be at her house all the time. She was born in 1907. Wow. My grandfather's mother was born in 1907. She died when I was 30. I spent all my North Carolina, you know, I was with her all the time. Yeah. And then my great-grandfather was born in 1900, and I spent time with him all the time. Yeah. Um, he died when I was, when I was 20, when I was 22 years old. Mm-hmm. So I got a chance to know them. And then yeah. I knew one great-great-grandparent. So, um... And we black people didn't talk about influenza. We would say people died. Yeah. We said that they died because they went out into the cold or they caught death of death of pneumonia is yeah. what they called it. Yeah. Um it was a plague. It was yeah. it was that it was the it was the influenza. Yeah. Is what they what they got. But we called it death of pneumonia. Yeah. That's right. That is right. Mm-hmm. So now I understand that you enjoy traveling, cooking and entertaining. Mm-hmm. So what is your ideal vacation destination? What is your signature meal to prepare? And what is your favorite time or holiday to entertain? So my favorite holiday, we're going to start off first. <laughs> Save the first, best, Christmas. Yeah. I love, love, love Christmas. Um, <laughs> my mother loved it too. 
Yeah, and it's because my, my grandfather, who's deceased now, mm-hmm. my grandfather made Christmas so unforgettable yeah. for us. My grandfather, I mean, you could just, you know how you got the smells of the house? Yes. You can sit back and remember the music you listen to mm-hmm. and you know, the, the bells will be ringing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, that's the wake up Christmas song. And then we, you know, because they were old black people and old black people didn't have a lot when they were growing up for Christmas. So we always had a bowl of candy, hard candy. Always. We always had fruit. And that and that's because of poverty. Mm-hmm. Hard candy was very expensive when they were young. Mm-hmm. So having some candy at Christmas time was a treat. So we continued that into and I do it now. Mm-hmm. So I still I have a bowl of can, candy. I, I still have a bowl that has grapes. Mm-hmm. Um, it has oranges. It has apples um, on the table um, during Christmas time because that's what I had growing up. Um, the you know the 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 smells of the Christmas tree, the pines, yeah. the, the music, the laughter, um, getting new stuff, opening up gifts, and you know um, you know being told you know look you can't you can't open your eyes because if you open your eyes on Christmas. Then, then Santa Claus is gonna blow pepper in your face, and I'm like, huh? Yeah. I ain't be doing that. That means you gotta stay sweet. No matter that you can see people in the in the living room doing stuff under the tree, you're like, I can see something there. Right. Um, and and leaving stuff for Santa. My our Santa Claus like Pepsi Cola and cake. <laughs> <laughs> So we could we could leave Pepsi Cola and cake, and if we got a, and we so it's five of us, so everybody, so it's five pieces of cake and five Pepsi's for Santa Claus. So it's like you know, it wasn't like one Pepsi. It's like everybody got to leave Santa a Pepsi, and <laughs> and my girl was like, "Do Santa need five Pepsi Colas? Does he need five pieces of pound cake?" Like, yeah, oh, um, that is cute. We'd get up and it would be gone, and we would just be like, "Oh my god!" Right. Came and ate it. <laughs> right. He drank the five pops and ate all the cake. And my mom <laughs> would be looking at us like, "If y'all don't go somewhere, and sit down." <laughs> um, but my grandfather just made it, even though it was an imaginary world. He made it so real for us as black kids. We we only took pictures with black Santa Clauses. So I'm here, I'm telling you we um we was like the black when when I'm when I, my classmates say you used to talk about black stuff yeah we took pictures with black Santa Claus <laughs> um, and you know at Value City up the street they had black Santa Claus so we Value would go City to see black Santa Claus. and um so that so that that whole thing around Christmas my favorite meal that I cook so I make a stuffed chicken so I make mm. a stuffed chicken and stuffed with spinach mm. um and then I take um spinach and vegetable cream cheese. And I drain the spinach, I um, cook it, um, mix it in with the cream cheese, and then I slice the chicken, um, I slice the split chicken, and then stuff the, 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 the mixture into the chicken. And then I saute some um, yellow peppers, red peppers, green peppers, and onions um, in a little butter. And I put the chicken into the stove. I put um, a special seasoning on top and a little olive oil. And I cook it until it browns, and then I put the peppers on top, and that is like my favorite. That's meal. A, that sounds okay. good. <laughs> and then um, um, the other thing was, so it was the meal, the Santa. and your and your and your and your and your ideal vacation destination. Oh, 
so my so I went to Africa a couple of years ago wow. before COVID. Okay. For my vacation, and I was able to sit at the ocean every single day. I walked out my door and walked to the ocean every day, every. Day. And I was so mad when I had to go to the city. I was like, this vacation sucks. The next <laughs> time I come, I'm not like, who wants to go into a city and hear a bunch of noise? I can hear noise at home. Right. So the next time I go, like, I'm going to just stay at the ocean and just sit at the ocean every single day. I would come, I would be at the ocean every day in the morning and I would eat fresh pineapple for breakfast because the guy was like, you don't eat any other stuff? I'm like, nope, I'm good with the pineapple. <laughs> um, and so he, he got so used to seeing me, he was like, yep, here's your pineapple because we know you ain't eating nothing but pineapple. <laughs> and um, and I would sit there and then in the evening, um, I would sit there at the ocean and I just felt a connection to my ancestors. Um, and I looked around and realized that we had been fed a bill of lies. Like we were told that nobody ever tried to come look for us. And if you've ever been along the waters in Africa, the villagers live near the water. Mm -hmm. And it's like all these different villages, they all live near the water. So why are these people speaking in all these different dialects right here by the water? And I'm like, because they came for us. They came looking for us. So they moved from their village to to be close to the water so that they could find us. And, yeah. I mean, for me, that was the most, when I said, I'm like. Where, where, we, where, reason, where did you go in Africa? Where, what country? Well, I was in Ghana. Okay. And so when I'm like, okay, well, these people live here because they came looking for us. You know, um, they came to where the dungeons or where the water was because they were expecting us to come back, you know. Um, yeah, wasn't it so last I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No. What? I was going to say, wasn't it last year that Ghana had, uh, where people came back home and they, uh, any African-American that wanted to come back to Ghana, was it last year, year before last, and they gave people automatically dual citizenship? I think that was, yeah, right. was, so was that, that Was that 2020? That was two years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so it was a re- return home, and so we, um, so I did the return home, um, and you know, so that that is my that is my dream vacation. I, I have vacation in a lot of places, but for me, that whole connection, um, even though that's not exactly that's not where my family came. Like we came from the Cameroon region, mm-hmm. um, so which one day I want to go and and visit, which is my great 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 grandfather came from the Cameroon region. Um, he was um, a carpenter, and mm-hmm. they kidnapped him in 1783 and forced him here to the United States and then gave him a name, Newland, mm-hmm. that became his last name. So his daughter, when he had a daughter, her name became Sarah Newland. Wow. Um, and um, and then she had a daughter named Harriet. Um, and then Harriet had a daughter named Amanda. And then Amanda married John and John and Amanda had 14 children. And one of them was my great, great grandfather. And I was my great grandfather. And, um, so I, I'm one of the few black people that know my history. Um, and, and we know that there was some mixing there because, you know, when he got to Amanda, Amanda looked more white than black. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and then there's native American. So there was some native somewhere also, because when I did a DNA test, like, I knew my history before DNA. 
Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. People are like, oh, you took a DNA test? And I'm like, no, I took a go sit down and talk to your grandmother test. <laughs> like, I went sat down and talked to my great grandmother, and she yeah. told me all these stories. Right. <laughs> and she was showing me pictures in the book, and yeah. she's like, this is your grandmother, this is your great grandmother, this is her mother. This, And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, you know, and then I still have one great, great, great aunt that's living in my grandmother's. My grandmother's aunt is still living. She oh. lives in West Virginia. Bless her heart. Um, and her father was born in 1870. Wow. That's one, a wonderful legacy. Just yeah, a and so for me, that's that whole connection. Like, where, yeah. where do I want a vacation at? I want a vacation at my best vacation is where my ancestors were from. There you go. That's well said. So now, how can people? But, but before you go, I just want to say I was when I was reading through your information, uh, you are you're an eight to five beta, correct? No, I'm oh. not. Actually, eight to five beta gave me an award. Okay, because my mother was a charter member of eight to five beta for forty years. <laughs> so I just wanted oh, to, wow. yes, I just wanted yeah. to share that with you. My mother, my mother was a, my parents were serious club people, serious club people. Well, so, a lot of black people were. You know, my yeah. my my great great my great great grandfather, who was born in eighteen seventy, mm-hmm. he was a mason. Yeah, and my grandmother was like, yeah, he was some high level mason because when he died, they had all these people. Yeah, and he had all of these awards and honors. They pinned all this stuff on him. Yeah, and she was like, you know, so a lot of us because remember that was our our entertainment. Yeah, so a lot of us were. Yeah. Yeah, my parents were yeah. very involved. So now, how can people contact you regarding your organization's services, volunteer, donate, or be a guest on your Zoom podcast, or book you for speaking engagements? So they can. the best way for them to contact us mm-hmm. is they can send an email to neobhc at gmail.com, or they can go on our website um, at www.neoblackhealthcoalition.org, and then it gives you everything. Um or they can call me. They can call 216-295-0283 um, and, and talk to me. Yeah, and, I, and, and once again, I want to encourage our listeners to definitely go to your website because you have, you have a, lot of, a lot of information, just a lot. You're doing a lot, and just continue all the good work that you're doing. And I just want to thank you for stopping by today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm very proud of you, and, uh, and uh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I would like to leave our audience with a quote from my guest today. We must be innovative and find solutions to the current drivers of disparities. We cannot talk about racism as a public health crisis and do nothing to address the, to address the inequalities in education, employment, housing, and health. Changing our outcomes starts with accountability and action. I would like to thank our audience for coming by today. We appreciate your support. Please join us again as we continue our conversation with Clevelanders who are making positive contributions to their neighborhoods in our city. Visit Neighborhood Connections' website to see all of our community engagement activities and opportunities. If you have a great idea and want to do something positive for your community, contact Neighborhood Connections at 216-361-0042 or email us at www.neighborhoodgrants.org and like us on Facebook. Stay informed, stay involved, stay connected. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining me today on Neighbor Up Spotlight. Neighbor Up Spotlight is sponsored by Neighborhood Connections and the Equity in the Arts Fund in association with Bad Record Recording Studios. Executive producer, creator, writer, host, Carol Malone. 
Co-producer, Lila Mills. Engineer, James Cananan. Photography, social media, Vince Robinson. Graphic artist, Cadrian Hinton. We're just a homemade, handmade podcast from scratch. Please share our positive stories with your neighbors, friends, and family, and on your social media. Thank you for listening, and neighbor up.